0: Game Cool Books, Episode 59, Look for the Tempter. Continuing the slow build-up of the Ember Spyglass, we get a triad of chapters, all opening with Miltonic cadences, each chapter triangulating on other important characters to surround and support the main events to do with Will and Lyra. First comes the Adamant Tower. The epigraph for chapter 5 comes from Paradise Lost, book 1. It's part of the invocation to the muse. With ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God raised impious war in heaven and battle proud. The quote leaves out the subject of the sentence, which comes some ten lines earlier, the infernal serpent. And it elides the very next line, which concludes with vain attempt. The solitary figure, Satan-like, who makes the choice to take the greater risk for urgency's sake and plunges into the mephitic, noxious air at the start of the chapter is unnamed. Pursuers and quarry are lost in this cloud, disoriented like the reader. Is this the clouded mountain? As if Looking on from a long way away, we see the angels, if it's angels, struggling like scraps of flame rising, falling. But two hunters never emerge, making the environment itself as deadly as anyone in it. Abruptly, we shift scene again to the western edge of the mountains, to a fortress of basalt, that looks like a natural part formed a million years ago with the mountains. Just what Ruta Scottie was struck by when she visited, how long it seems to have been in the making. This, of course, is Lord Asriel's headquarters. He's provisioned and his arsenals and mills forming phosphor and titanium alloys. There's echoes of the infernal host in Paradise Lost but also that particular alloy of the silver guillotine. We zoom in on the postern sentry at the coldest hour of the night. As he's nearing the end of his watch, he thinks about naphtha, chocolatel, smoke leaf, so he must be from Lyra's world. And three come carrying a fourth. It turns out to be Baruch. The sentry's demon howls, on seeing a wounded angel of however low rank and little power. Again, I wonder if this is the recognition between demon and angel of like to like. Now we come to the Tower of Adamant itself, with its windows commanding the cardinal directions, Lord Azrael and his spy captain, and another watchful presence, a blue hawk, are conversing here. The spy is slender as a dragonfly. We'll see that association with dragonflies come back shortly. Lord Roke is only a handspan tall, but armed with poisonous spurs on his heels, again insect like. His pride and his small size make him Napoleonic, and a curious foil for Astriel. His eyes are described as droplets of ink suggesting the hand writing the scene as well. When he ventures to know more than Azriel does, his lord's glance flicks him like a finger. That wine glass he holds <laughs> to keep his balance and that flick recall Lyra's insouciance at the very opening of the first book. And the connection back to Lyra becomes explicit and transferred to Asriel in the reference to him making his face bland like his daughter's. She is the focus of the church's attention, according to the spy. But the church is internally divided, the branches keeping secrets from one another. The consistorial court and the society of the work of the Holy Spirit, and he has spies in both, the one, Lady Salmachia, has tricked the mouse demon of a priest into performing a forbidden ritual meant to invoke wisdom. This is just one of the hints of Pullman's own interest in Gnosticism. It's much more salient in his early novels, Galatea and the Haunted Storm, and is treated more caustically, as it is here, in The Tiger in the Well. He's tinged now with amusement, as it's described that a gallivespian lives in his bookcase. That's wisdom. That word gallivespian sounds almost like a portmanteau word of gulliver and thespian, or spy. Anyhow, Lyra is the most important child to the church. They foresee a coming crisis with everything, depending on how she behaves. We'll see in the next chapter their inquiry with survivors of Bolvanger. The Chevalier Tialis and his lodestone resonator are introduced at this point. So that's another remarkable item to go with the other artifacts. Perhaps it's a discarded title for this third book. We also see that knowledge and action is a classic dilemma, particularly in Uh, terms of contemplative and active life um, presented here as part of that division within the church. And the bridle and saddle and stirrups on the hawk carry some echoes of Queen Mab, perhaps, as Lord Roke goes riding it out of the window. We get a rare bit of introspection from Azrael here, recalling his shock when the sacrifice he needed in order to open the bridge turned out to be his own daughter, and his relief at seeing Roger with her. He wonders if it was a fatal mistake to ignore her. He has the active and contemplative placed before us again. He asks, what can she do? What does she know? Her access to knowledge with the alethiometer is dismissed as nothing special, since others have that access too. But, we might say, none have quite the reading capability that she does. Not even close. In fact, from the witch's prophecy and the statement by the Master of Jordan, we know it might matter more what she doesn't know. Asriel's curse here is a little over the top. Where in hell's name is she? And on cue, Baruch is brought in to tell him. Asriel uses herbs on the brazier, which as Will found help him to see the angel. And in this I see an image of incest. Incense, almost. There's three things the angel wants to say before he's interrupted. He tells him about the rebels' party, a phrase akin to that Blake used of Milton and all true poets. He wanted to bring something valuable to Azrael, for their own power was small. This is emphasized again and again. So what they have is knowledge, not the power of action. They snuck into the heart of the citadel and they learned the truth there that they wouldn't tell Will that the authority has retired to a chamber of crystal and is relieved of directing the daily affairs, whatever those might be, in order to contemplate deeper mysteries, whatever those might be. Metatron rules in his stead. At this point, we're told the angel is fading, but Azrael holds his tongue. Metatron is proud with limitless ambition, and so another reflection of Azrael himself. He was chosen 4,000 years ago as regent. Not quite as long as it seems Azrael has been planning this assault. And the two of them have a new plan now. The conscious beings of all the worlds have become too independent and they plan to intervene more actively, moving the authority to become an engine of war ...evidently able to pass between the worlds, perhaps using Azriel's own technology. There's a permanent Inquisition planned, which is first going to destroy Azriel's own Republic. Now we're told the two of them are trembling, one with weakness, the other with excitement. But for now Asriel still listens... Come to the second thing, the knife, of unlimited power so long as it's in the hand of one who knows how to wield it, who is a boy. And now, as he's frightened and drifting apart, Azrael again exercises restraint and does not speak up. The angel goes on. His companion is with Will, who has refused to come to them. And this brings to the third thing, that the boy is friends with Azrael's own daughter that they found her, and now he can't hold back anymore. Asriel interrupts, demanding who the boy is. He's told he's the son of the shaman Stanislaus Grimman, comes from another world, that the angels were led to him by their desire to find the knife. Drawn by a form of attention, a form of human potential, like the specters in a way. And they tried to bring him here. Now Israel begins to curse his impatience. Uh, the thread of the story has been broken. We hear the snapping of the rope on its flagpole, that standard Azrael has raised to gather rebels to him. The angel mentions the Himalaya, In her own world, a cave near a valley full of rainbows, and, as real remarks, he must have flown quickly, he calls it his only gift, besides the love of Balthamos, whom Baruch will never see again. Now, any angel may find her just as easily, it seems. Again, using that mysterious power of finding, drawn to certain kinds of attention, Akin to Asriel's own power of calling, although apparently able to pinpoint its object a bit better. Asriel pulls out the atlas, and the angel, his mind still wandering, says that with the knife, he can go anywhere he wants and makes a pun here. He can go at will. His name is Will, suggesting the significance that's in this pun. Human will, another form of potential. Metatron knows that he has it now. They almost caught them on the border of the world, and Baruch was almost caught on the borders of this, he says. So that must be where this chapter opened after all. And then a strange detail. The angel Metatron was Baruch's brother, which is how he was able to find them so easily how each was able to find the other they in the clouded mountain reaching the heart and metatron almost catching them before will cut away through the worlds that's how i interpret this anyway his name in life was enoch and he was a lover of the flesh He cast Baruch out because, and here he trails off, but his next words suggest the reason. His dear Balthamos. Where exactly is Lyra? Azrael still wants to know, but the angel can only say disconnected phrases about her mother, the tattered flags. And then Stelmaria, the demon, springs to try to stop a person from coming in, but it's too late. An orderly opens the door, and the draft from it makes the particles of the angel swirl away in randomness, the last articulate thought coming, as Balthamus' name, a whisper from the air. He's quick to say it's not anyone's fault. What's unsaid is that if it is anyone's, it's Asriel's for interrupting gives a flurry of orders for King Ogunwe and his commanders, for Basilides, Zeppelin, and Gyropter divisions. Ogun seems to refer to a god or spirit, the Yoruba, associated with metalwork. And tapping his brass dividers here, Azrael is a play on the image of Newton with his tools, or Urizen himself, perhaps, William Blake's Ancient of Days. The fires and clang offer more infernal imagery. And he says he's learned a lot, but not enough. Yet he's going to act on that knowledge he's gained. Tucros Basilides, when he comes in with his nightingale demon, seems to refer back to Keats again, the ode to a nightingale. And he certainly refers to the Greco-Roman myths, Pullman that also taught for years. Tucros was a hero in the Trojan War. His words in Horace's Odes, 1.7, seem apposite. Do not despair. Ezreal has him pinpoint down to the coordinates the most important thing everyone wants to know, where Lyra is. As for who this reader of the alethiometer is, why and how Ezreal has brought crows, Basilides with him instead of Lyra, we never find out. She, meanwhile, is still dreaming and stamped her foot in the dream so hard it hurt her. She says, don't believe it, and don't say it. That's referring to Roger saying that she'll forget him. But she insists she will wake up and she won't forget. She won't think it's just a dream. She sees the hopeless faces, with their diversity of all races and ages, close, silent, and sorrowful around her, Surely another reference to underworld scenes in the great myths. And Roger's face is different. His shows hope. She asks why. And what he says is interrupted by the next chapter. Preemptive Absolution. This chapter is about the church. Headed by Milton's epigraph from book three this time, Relics, beads, indulgences, dispenses, pardons, bulls, the sport of winds. The context there is the vanity, according to him, of certain Christian beliefs to go along with the vanity of the infernal serpent, who is passing through what is going to be the future limbo into which these believers will be thrown, just as Satan is traversing it in pursuit of his own vain ambitions. Fra Pavel is on the stand reporting the words of the captured witch aboard the ship. His frog demon is expressing his fear. They say that it's eight days they've spent getting testimony here in the ancient St. Jerome. And that's a potentially valuable timestamp. The torture... That he saw made it difficult for him to recall exactly, but the witch's meaning is clear. The child has been recognized as the subject of their prophecy. She will make a faithful choice, and there is a name that will make the parallel clear and make the church hate and fear her. That witch was killed, and Mrs. Coulter left. The child, too, is gone, with the help of a boy with a knife. And here, Fra Pavel interrupts himself, worried, but he's assured he must speak freely by the president. This knife will open worlds. It has the power to kill the most high. There is nothing it cannot destroy. And here his frog sips at some water. Give the name, waste no more time, the president demands. Lyra is in the position of Eve. The nuns, taking down the transcript here, almost break their vow of silence. So surprising is this news. But, he insists, the alethiometer is not forecasting, but giving conditions. If she is tempted, it's likely she will fall. And the outcome will be that dust and sin will triumph. But that, of course, is more than the alethiometer has said. That is his interpretation. Then we get another image, like we do, of dust. The million motes of ordinary dust, not dust with a capital D. in The sun streaming through the windows here. And it's interpreted a bit for us here. This is the image of that invisible sin that settles on the believers, no matter how dutiful their works. That's how they see it. The child is in the hands of Mrs. Coulter in the Himalaya, and he is sent away to ask at once for more clarity. But... Here he gives a little extra information, as the alethiometer sometimes does, that the society knows more. Now he knows this is dangerous because of the rivalry between the different arms of the church, but he supposes it's more dangerous to hold back what he knows. They are closer to finding out, for they have other sources of knowledge forbidden to him. Maybe this is an allusion to Samakia's disguise as wisdom. But if so, the alethiometer is not telling him the whole truth, or again, he might be misunderstanding its information. Anyhow, he's going to go find out more with the help provided. The stenographers are dismissed, and the gentlemen adjourn. Clearly, this is a patriarchy. Gomez is singled out as the youngest, but the president is a Scot, Hugh Macphail. He would mold the destiny of the church for many years, and the evidence of this molding is in his own body, which would be fat, but for the brutal discipline he imposes through diet exercise, and his own restlessness, his lizard, his cold-blooded demon, and he's told that Azrael is gathering his army by a witch, friendly to the church. But he emphasizes more the internal adversary than the external one. He says the board was hoping to replace them as the most powerful arm of the church, and he's interested in this boy and the knife and what it might have to do with dust, what was discovered at Polvanger. She's going to find out downstairs. Again, that simple word, has a chilling effect on his audience here as they imagine the cellars white-tiled with emberic current, soundproof, and well-drained. He seeks not to understand dust, but to destroy it, which is, after all, what Asriel told Mrs. Coulter he was going to do, and why Lyra decided that she ought to save dust. He says, this is so important that if the Holy Church is to perish in the doing of it, it's worth it to have that hideous burden of sin purged. Gomez, anyhow, approves of this extreme martyrdom. And one suspects that the author would also like to see the Church perish. This Eve, he says, in whose fall all their ruin is implicated... About her, he proposes the most radical strategy, to kill her. And Gomez points out he's done preemptive penance, this doctrine within the consistorial court, to have built up a store of credit, of absolution, for a sin as yet uncommitted. Now, this is unknown in the real world, church, either, Um, But it's clearly based on concepts like indulgences and the zealotry of those who commit martyrdoms and acts of faith, so-called. So this assassin will be in a state of grace to permit him to commit his sin, which would be no sin at all. Gomez is compared to the arrow of God going invisible and in the night like the angel that blasted the Assyrians this apparently refers to 2 Kings verse 19 or chapter 19 rather Isaiah chapter 37 repeats the same story or possibly it refers to Byron and his galloping destruction of Sennacherib poem they wish there had been a gar- uh, Gomez in the garden of eden and they would never have left paradise." Again, that seems like a rather drastic interpretation of the story, but the court gives Gomez their blessing, and it's clear who's really in charge here, President MacPhail. And meanwhile, the spy, we know who that is, heard every word. It's unclear whether the Chevalier goes down and listens in on the basement as well. Anyhow, the reader is privy to a conversation with Bolvanger's own Dr. Cooper, this rabbit demon. There's no furniture down there but a bunk, a chair, and a bucket, a kind of reflection of the courtroom above, but also a parallel to Azriel's digs at the top of his tower. He says they nearly succeeded in severing the child, and that would have ended everything, apparently, When Mrs. Coulter saved her, it's implied, but not exactly said, she rescued her daughter. MacPhail makes a comment about their strong nerves, which sets poor Dr. Coopers on edge. He dithers about how he understood the program was licensed and trails off repeatedly, but now they come to the real subject of the president's inquiry, which is Azriel's researches and the source of the incredible energy he found to open the worlds. The drop of sweat is heard in the chamber. This release of energy is compared to an atomic explosion detonated by conventional explosives that by focusing an anbaric current, they could create a major release of energy When demons are severed. Now, this is not taken seriously, Dr. Cooper says, because it could be heretical. His colleague who discovered and was interested in it died in the attack, he says. His own demon swoons at the smile MacPhail gives him. It's unclear whether this is because he's lying and he really knows more, or simply because he is being given his own great task here to earn his forgiveness by holding nothing back, by giving all his attention to notes and experiments and equipment to rediscover, if necessary, what his colleague knew. He's told to give thanks to the authority, and he does, bowing pitifully grateful to help in this horrible way. We shift scenes to Tialis and Samachia, the spies, at one of their meeting points in the city of Geneva. It's a dangerous journey for them to go anywhere here because of cats and mangy dogs. But again, we see a saving, however small, where the lady saves her companion from one of those strays. They go and talk by a shabby square with its plane tree. They talk about the court's friendly invitation, which has already gone out, to discuss their matters, remark that this is quick work they're making. They talk about their secret assassin, and they say how logical these people are. The spies wonder if they'll ever see this child, and they'd like to. Like the reader, who will be missing Lyra by now, after this discussion in the church... They agree to meet tomorrow at the fountain. And what's unsaid, and this is interesting, the narrator tells us, is that their lives are very short, that they live to be about nine or ten years old and are already in their eighth. Their people, the Galavespians, die in their full vigor after a brief childhood. So that there's a comparison made. The life of Lyra to them is like the witches to her. And so we see yet another variation on this theme of being human, of growing up. They go to send messages back via the resonator, and the chapter concludes with an apparently unobserved scene, again, between the president and his assassin, Father Gomez. He grants the absolution that has been sought, so that this will be no murder, and the young priest is transfigured with his own certainty. He's incandescent. We should probably be thinking like Lee Scoresby when he killed the agent at the observatory of paintings of martyrs in ecstasy. Now a practical matter. to talk about money and how he'll be cut off from all help and can never come back. This is where the advice comes. To look for the tempter, not for the girl. The tempter is a she, and this is surprising to them. It suggests how strange this world is. But apparently, the alethiometer has indicated this. He calls it a sacred task, so yet another work, and that he has faith in the power of Gomez's faith. Now, that's a strange thing to say. The emphasis on your faith might imply his own is contingent. It invites a kind of infinite regress in which our faith is in others' faith rather than in any real God. Now, Macphail claims that the tempter will be guided by the powers of evil to where she might meet the child. And so if their first plan to kill the child falls through, The ultimate guarantee will be his work. Now, apparently he's not going to kill the tempter, which one would suppose would also circumvent any plans of the evil powers, but instead to wait until she leads him to Lyra. He calls him Dear Luis, and they kiss farewell. As he's dispatched here, Another story thread is unspooled, but it's closely linked to Mary, whom we'll see next. The chapter closes with Roger's explanation. Why does he have hope? Because you're Lyra. And she feels a burden fall upon her, a burden of responsibility that makes her dizzy, even in the dream, kind of like feeling that pain stamping her foot, this is a hint, this is not just a dream. But it's already fading, his face receding into shadow. She's trying to tell him about all the people that are on their side, the powers of evil, in the words of the church. People like Dr. Malone from her other Oxford. But there's one person, really. And now her thoughts are wandering away like sheep, but she says that they can trust him she swears. Her reason is cut off. We shift to the next chapter, titled Mary Alone. so a pun on her name, just as we heard Baruch make a pun with wills. This one is not really accurate, as it turns out, because the whole chapter is about how she meets someone else. Trees are the image we get from Milton this time. Trees in the unfallen world. Last rose as in dance the stately trees and spread their branches hung with copious fruit. That's in book seven of Paradise Lost. Another play on language here with the tempter tempted. An old couple in their olive grove offering her more hospitality reminiscent of another myth, that of Bacchus and Philemon, turned into trees by the gods in Ovid Metamorphoses. The specters are avoiding her, it seems, and so they consider her a talisman. She's been in this world a week, so about as long as the testimony's been going on back in Geneva. She's in horror of those ethereal vampires. And knows she can't stay but must move on. So she claps a kind of ritual of farewell. And we are reminded of her last communication on the screen of the computer back in The Subtle Knife. Now that she's gone through the world, uh, she can't decide what to do next. She knows she's supposed to play the serpent, but doesn't know what that means. And so she's going to look for guidance now from a silk scarf. She takes out a book that she's had for some 20 years. It's a commentary on the I Ching. She's brought it with her for sentimental reasons, but also because Lyra asked a question about the diagram pinned in her office. What's that? (laughs) Apparently, Dust has many ways of communicating with people. It's what Lyra learned by asking the cave. This one involves yarrow stalks and dividing and counting and interpreting how they fall. This is something Mary learned to do as a teenager and almost forgot, but the ritual now comes back to her attention and a calm sort of frame of mind that we're familiar with by now. And also the book, which is very interesting. Lyra, of course, doesn't need the book's Of interpretations of the alethiometer. But even to understand this book, it seems, she has to keep her mind in that same state of poetic uh, knowledge. The phrase that we hear is about turning to the summit for provision of nourishment and spying about with sharp eyes like a tiger with insatiable craving no blame. The Wilhelm commentary runs. In contrast to the six in the second place, which refers to a man bent exclusively on his own advantage, this line refers to one occupying a high position and striving to let his light shine forth. To do this, he needs helpers, because he cannot attain his lofty aim. With the greed of a hungry tiger, he is on the lookout for the right people. Since he is not working for himself, but for the good of all, There is no wrong in such zeal. And elsewhere in the commentaries, it says, The good fortune in turning to the summit to be provided with nourishment inheres in the fact that the one above spreads light. So it's understandable why Mary finds all this encouraging. She follows the commentary in its mazy path and comes to, Keeping still is the mountain. We can read this in a different section on the discussion of the trigrams, which wraps up, Gnarled tree trunks possess the greatest power of resistance. I'm again taking this from the Wilhelm text and commentary on I Ching, which is in turn translated from German into English for us in a very lovely Bollingen edition with a foreword by none other than Jung. So Mary's interpretation of all this considers that it must refer to the openings, uh, the windows in the air between worlds, and decides to literally go upwards to find one. Four hours later, as the track peters out with little stones in this landscape of groves of trees and abandoned windmills, um, she stops because the light catches something like a sheet of glass hanging in the air, a a patch of difference. It's a window like the one she came through back in Sunderland Avenue. And she's able to see it because of a certain quality in the light, very much like seeing an angel at certain times of day. She takes the time she has now to examine this one, see how its edge is intangible, how it's invisible from the other side, and the absolute difference that she can feel and perceive between the two worlds, and the wonder that she feels that such things could be. We're told a little bit more uh, by the narrator that this was made around the time of the American Revolution by a careless knife-bearer, that it's at least at a point similar between the two worlds, insofar as there's rock on either side. But whereas this one is in the the scree slope, the other world is at the top of a vast plain, and it's evening. Um, So Mary, again, tastes this wonder. Um, She looks out over the endless prairie or savannah, the grass in its variety of shades, the rivers of rock, and the tallest trees she's ever seen. She thinks back to a physics conference in California, but these trees would overtop the redwoods there by half again. Another conference she went to will be the subject of her main story when she's tempting Lyra much later. But for now, she thinks about the strangeness of the movement of the grazing creatures that she can't quite make out. She finds a trickle of, of spring water and, uh, and beds down for the night. Her waking the next morning, lapped in freshness, feeling like the first human being is clearly Edenic. She sees birds like motes of dust, And that's quite different from the church's associations with that image. Here it's something living and free. It's heading, or rather she's heading for the trees through the flowers with their haze of tints and marveling at the hummingbird, which in a blur moves with wings too fast to see. Uh, Mary thinks of how biologists would envy her, but also of her own, Ignorance of biology. She sees those deer like creatures with their arrangement of legs in a diamond shape, giving them that curious rocking motion. She longs to examine a skeleton. Now, she's not curious why uh, they should not go under the shade of the trees. But she finds her way there, following one of those rivers of stone, like a lava flow but with its surface ground down, gathering evidence, and finds that the trees have trunks wide as her house, too tall to compare to anything in her experience. At the ground level, there are leaf skeletons and flying things, butterflies, a sound of humming and buzzing, a busy sound, but also... A calm, almost like a cathedral, with its sense of upwardness and awe. So a positive religious image comes in here. The shafts of light coming down through. She finds that she needs to doze off and not worry too much about why none of the other creatures are seeking shelter here from the heat. But she's woken from her doze by a crash as round objects bounce off the buttress-like root of the tree. Now, this suggests the danger inherent in such religious sublimity. She wonders if these are seed pots of the trees. They're circular, about the width of her palm, and at the center there's something she can feel around it, the hair's uh, revolving, and her fingers are smoother when they come back to her. So all of her senses are engaged here. A smell of dust. Interesting. A glistening oil. She marvels as she begins to connect the ways this world has evolved. And if these multiple worlds have split, some earlier, some later she must be one uh, now who's who's much earlier split has allowed these vast differences in the biology of the living things. This is where she reflects on her ignorance, comparing herself to a baby, and there's a, a measure of innocence there along with all of her mature and scientific experience. Now, the people that she's come to meet arrive in a rumble and a cloud of dust. Again, dust. She's afraid at first, at this approaching dust cloud. She thinks it's a motorcycle gang, and then sees it's wheeled animals, which is, of course, is impossible. They're leaning and horned heads and short elephant-like trunks. But strangest of all is that wheel that comes separate. Now, Pullman tells a story of how he came up with this idea for the mulefa in the course of a walk around a lake with his son. Um, One of the places he tells the story is in The Path Through the Wood in Demon Voices. It's perhaps one of the most extended commentaries he makes on his own writing. Um, And it possibly also illuminates some of what's going on with the rose oil in the new trilogy, The Book of Dust. Now, as Mary is beginning to make some of the same connections about the wheels that Pullman does, she laughs out loud. And there's an image there of the delight in learning. The wheels that they use are the seed pots. They hook a claw into the center and use their lateral legs to push and gather speed. Now, they uh, also display human-like intelligence and curiosity. She can tell that they're looking for her, and she interprets their chirps and hoots as language, expressing disapproval for having tampered with their seed pod wheel. So they have the concept of right and wrong. Though she is guilty of the wrong, she knows that it is her purpose here to do something, and so she, although self-consciously, Boldly apologizes and holds out her hands, even if that means nothing to them. (laughs) Again, she's taken by the intelligence in their gaze, so different from the grazing animals as humans are from cows, although I've known a few people who like to ruminate as much as anyone, myself included. And the first thing she tries to say to them is her name, Mary, which is a very significant name to give a tempter. Um, And hears her voice come back to her from the creature. Next she asks, what are you? And they ask in turn, with her words, what are you? She answers, I am a human. And as they say that, it elicits laughter. The laughter this time, not from learning, as she laughed out loud before, but from not understanding yet, from having the possibility of learning held out. Because what they do understand, at least, is the intention to communicate, which that much is mutually understood between them, it seems. They're fascinated by her uh, touching her hands, smelling the oil on them, perhaps, and she wonders if they might be able to communicate at some point. Though she remarks, God knows how she can't tell at first when they tell her that they are called mulefa, if that's two or three syllables. And she can tell that they are teasing the one who's trying to speak to her, regarding it all as a fine joke. She supposes they won't eat her. Despite all those horns, as devilish as they are, um, no, no violence by the mulefa ever comes into play. So she's right about this. And so they all relax, but they have things to do, like she does. They have packs to carry seed pots. And she marvels now at their grace and power, as well as their intelligence. Their trumpeting brings um, the grazing animals who heed the call, although they can't speak. Uh, and they milk, and then give her some of the milk. Um she regards this as clever and kindly, uh, however strange, embraces and kisses and feels the bones uh, and smells the odor of the creature who provides this nourishment for her. They're overjoyed at the welcome, uh, and there's sadness at the parting, but then Surprise too, because they seem to be offering to carry Mary with them. And a little awkward, but they uh, get her on board and move away, so she's riding among them. And that closes the chapter, aside from the dream, because he's will. And that finality in the dream sequence is another way, besides the Milton quotes that open the chapters, of linking these three. And so, they complement one another, they wrap up for us the first part, or prologue, to this story. Thanks for listening.